0: Welcome to the EMS Educator Podcast, powered by Prodigy EMS. Join
1: us for relevant, high-quality discussions around the best practices in EMS education. You'll find interviews with experts in EMS, education, simulation, medical direction, leadership, and more.
0: Hello and welcome back to another edition of the EMS Educator Podcast. I'm Rob Lawrence, and we have a deep dive into an essential, important an actually political topic this morning for you. And we're going to talk about the EMS response to OB deserts. And to break that out a little bit and introduce the ghost and the guests is my amazing co-host, Hillary Gates.
1: Thanks, Rob. We do have a, a really important um Uh, podcast for you today that has content that we call just in time education, because there are changes in our laws and our country and, um, and our um, care provision that um, are making it maybe more difficult and more complicated for EMS providers to take care of people. So, Uh, For that, today we're going to have not only Maya Dorsett, our uh, wonderful medical director for Prodigy, but also Tracy Coffey and Ashley Huff, who are here today to talk to us about taking care of patients with obstetrical emergencies. Tracy, could you introduce yourself, please?
2: Sure. Uh, My name is Tracy Coffey, and I am a practicing OBGYN in Clarksville, Tennessee, Um, and have been in the area for the last 10 years, previously was a military physician in the Army, also an OBGYN. so I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. Great. And Ashley?
3: Thank you. I'm Ashley Huff. I'm an emergency physician and EMS medical director with uh, experience as a ground EMS medical director in Illinois and currently uh, EMS medical director for an aeromedical service. I cover Illinois, Indiana, and I'm involved in Tennessee.
1: Wonderful. And Maya, this was a topic that uh, you and I started talking about a couple months ago. And um, not only were discussing some calls that we had heard about, but also, um, again, these changes that have been happening in the country with uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, as well as um, different states doing Medicaid expansion and not doing Medicaid expansion. And Maya, can you talk to us about sort of your vision for this overall um, podcast episode in terms of the big picture. Why do we need to look at this?
4: I think the reason that we need to look at this is that it is a prime example of how as EMS educators and EMS leaders, sometimes we have to pivot and figure out how we are going to fill the needs of our patients. And we saw this during COVID, right? We had to not only rapidly expand our medical protocols, but we also had to rapidly expand the education and guidance that we were giving our EMS clinicians to think about what is the the best way that we can care for the patients and their needs right now. And for a while now, we know that there's been a lot of unmet needs, particularly in the obstetrical care of patients. One, we don't receive a lot of education about this um, initially in EMS, and it it tends to be a low-frequency condition. But there's also a lot of inequities of care. Um, So one of the resources we'll provide is the March of Dimes map on OB care deserts. But there's a lot of regions within the US who have a lot of distance between where patients can get obstetrical care um, and what types of obstetrical care they're able to receive um, depending on sort of where they are and what their their goals and wishes are for that particular pregnancy or what complications they have. And just like, you know, COVID, revealed, right, what are the care deserts and the inequities of care that we have for a bunch of different conditions, sort of the change in legislation that we've had has actually exacerbated these care deserts, right, and made a lot more sort of inequities and differences between states, states, and locales. And fundamentally, the goal of EMS is to say, how do we best care for patients in our communities? And as EMS leaders, as educators, our goal is to prepare EMS clinicians to provide the best possible and compassionate care for those patients, and so um, Dr. Huff reached out to me and said that they're identifying right situations that they hadn't previously encountered in Tennessee because of the changes in these laws. And to me, this is a key example of how we have to pivot and provide, what, as you said, this just-in-time education to say, right, like, we have to provide, these are patients that we need to provide care for, and um, these are our patients, these are our communities. Um, how do we provide that leadership? And I think we're very lucky to have guests who have real-world experience in sort of rising to the challenge of providing that care. Terrific.
1: Tracy, as an OBGYN, you may uh, be able to best explain this idea of an OB care desert, as well as the recent legislative changes that have been impacting OB care in the United States. So I'd ask you to do that, and then we can pivot over to Ashley to talk up through really what this example uh, of OB care deserts and legislative changes have done in her state and in Tennessee uh, with these long-distance transfers. I think that'll be a really good way for us to frame the uh, impact especially on EMS.
2: So with the OB care deserts, it's uh, March of Dimes puts out their report based off of the number of women in the area and deliveries, as well as the, comparing it to the number of hospitals that provide OBGYN care in that area. Um, So here in Tennessee, we, it's, it's sporadic. You can look at the map and see that, you know, we're, we're not, um, Equipped with the number of hospitals that we need to care for the patient population, particularly in Clarksville. You know, five years ago, I met with the CEO of my hospital and was trying to garner support for recruiting two additional OBGYNs to the community. And at that point, we had 13 full time OBGYNs here um, and over the course of the last five years, our population has boomed, and within the next month, we'll be down to eight full-time OBGYNs serving Clarksville, Tennessee. Um, so even within the communities that aren't technically considered a desert, you know, we're still experiencing a decrease in the number of physicians that are here and able to provide the care that the patients need. Um, with regards to the legislation on August 25th of this year, the trigger ban went into effect for the state of Tennessee. And, um, even on the Guttmacher Institute's website, some of the information there is inaccurate. You know, it, it's been eye opening, um, to me how many people don't really understand what this law says and what this law means. Um, but ultimately it, it states that Any termination of a pregnancy uh, beyond the moment of fertilization is considered an abortion. And uh, any physician um, that aids in performing an abortion is guilty of a Class C felony. So Class C felonies in the state of Tennessee carry up to a $10,000 fine and up to 15 years in jail.
1: Let's let that sink in. Wow. Wow. Thank you, Tracy. And so, Ashley, what, uh, what were you seeing in the emergency department that got you to be thinking about how this is impacting not only EMS providers but also EM physicians in the
3: hospital? On the emergency physician side, this law most directly affected us on the treatment of ectopic pregnancies. So if a patient comes in with an ectopic that hasn't ruptured, um, they may be given medication, methotrexate, in the emergency department after we consult with an OB-GYN as soon as this law went into effect, we realized that that was now a felony, and we all had to seriously think about what we would be willing to do. Our law has what's called an affirmative defense, which means after you've been charged with your felony, you have the opportunity to defend yourself um, in the court of law. It's stating that you did it to save someone's life. That's not an exception. Uh, you can't use your med malinsurance to pay for those court costs. That's out of your own pocket. And you just might find yourself in jail. You would hope not. Nobody's been charged yet, which we're all very thankful for. But it's something everyone has had to consider, um, and it makes everyone very uncomfortable. There's also been a lot more conversations, many more conversations about the morning after pill for our victims of sexual assault, which we unfortunately see on a fairly regular basis. Uh, We can still provide the morning after pill um, for those patients um, because they they aren't currently pregnant, but when we have the follow-up conversation for them um, about where they can go um, if they do become pregnant, so the morning after pill just prevents ovulation, but if they've already ovulated and they get pregnant and they take a pregnancy test in a month and they find out they're pregnant, they can't be treated in the state of Tennessee. Um, they have to go elsewhere. So those conversations have been very um, I guess brought to the forefront in the emergency department, things we didn't really talk about Um, because of some of the confusion around it. We now have emergency physicians who are uncomfortable prescribing the morning after pill, even though it doesn't terminate a pregnancy. So there's a lot of conversations that are happening there. On the EMS side, um, on the eastern side of our state, in particular, uh, I think there's a couple cases now out of Chattanooga where patients have been transported multiple hours. We're talking four to six hours by ground to nearby states for treatment of severe preeclampsia. Which um, Dr. Coffee can go into this some more, but the treatment is you know, induction of labor, I and mean, it's you need to get that baby out. Um, so patients, I believe, with the next topic. Pregnancy was transferred out of state at one point. um, These are cases that have made the news. So we're certainly seeing longer transports by ground for OB-related emergencies. We teach our paramedics about these, um, but like you mentioned, it's only for a few weeks. Uh, They do their yearly continuing education. Um, But I, I really feel that we need to do a deep dive and focus on these issues some more, particularly since our crews are more likely to be seeing these patients.
1: Ashley, just just to clarify, you're saying that that because of these trigger laws, you have to, as an emergency physician receiving a patient from a paramedic, you have to say to them, I cannot take care of this patient in this state without threat of um, prosecution. Therefore, you need to take the patient back and drive them to another state. Is that what
3: you're saying? It's a little bit different than that. So there is Mtala laws, which state that as an emergency physician, we need to evaluate every patient, provide them with a medical screening exam, and determine whether there's a life-threatening emergency. Once we do that, well, that is a federal requirement, we then need to provide necessary care for our patients. So if the patient needs to go to the operating room with one of our OB-GYN colleagues or go to labor and delivery for treatment, that would be the recommendation we would make. Uh, in some parts of our state, people, uh, OB-GYNs have been uncomfortable about providing that care because of our state laws, because of the threat of being convicted or, I guess, charged with a class C felony. Everyone's had to make these decisions for themselves. Uh, There's not been a lot of uh, recommendations from our larger entities and organizations and healthcare systems on what to do. I was a part of a phone call, a department of health and human services, CMS and office of civil rights all together this morning with a whole bunch of um, stakeholders across Tennessee. And they made it very clear from the federal perspective that they expect that we will not only continue to follow Mtala, but that we will quickly recognize life-threatening emergencies and we will provide the care. We will offer to provide the care. That is the federal expectation, regardless of what our state law says. That doesn't change the fact that the state law still says it's a Class C felony. And so where that conversation went then was we need a whole lot more clarification on this. Um, Our state, uh, the states of Texas and Missouri, all have pending and cases right now because of these issues and patients being transferred out of state.
0: This is working its way up into a huge emotional catch-22, one where you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And, uh, you know, politics aside, this is a massive issue. And, and yeah. I'm so glad we're here. Um, one of the things that always sort of struck me as a as a chief in the UK in a very rural area, in the US in a very metropolitan contained area, is the was always the argument over who's the best medic, right? We do more calls in the metropolitan area, but the rural medic. My argument was always, well, we spend more time with the patient, and therefore we have to be really good at our patient care skills. We're not just running ten minutes to the level one; we are running four or five hours. That was always my argument about the, you know the rural medic, and now, but everybody here has to be on their game, because you could be, in your case, transporting for hours with a very, very complex, complicated, upset patient. And it's probably as emotional for the medic as it is for the patient. And so there's a whole ton to unpack here. I've just been listening with my mouth wide open here, because, of course, as, as Hillary and mine know, I'm also mired in the politics of, of, of EMS. And I'm also sat here with open mouth because national associations, governing bodies, or whomever, don't want to opine or, or have they or are they or will they? That's the question.
3: They, they're all in a difficult position. We did see the American College of Emergency Physicians take a fairly strong stand on uh, women's access to reproductive health, uh, patients' ability to access treatment for ectopic pregnancies, early rupture of membranes, preeclampsia, et cetera. That's the first time I've ever seen them really put together and pass a position statement stating that we as an organization support our patients' access to care. We've seen this across some other uh, national organizations. We are um, still very much, uh, hopefully, waiting to hear from our healthcare system entities. Um, I know there's some larger conversations going on right now with hospital associations in Tennessee, but due to the very uh, intense politics around the issue, everybody has been very careful about the conversations they've been having. Yeah,
2: I would agree. I think American Congress of OBGYN has been uh very forthcoming with their statement about how uh, access to abortion is healthcare and that all abortions are considered medically indicated. Um and I believe that changing the language is going to have a pretty significant impact on um every aspect of this, even down to the political aspect. There there are a lot of connotations that go along with words like abortion um that People feel very strongly about. So um, when you make it emotional, when you make it political, it takes away from the fact that it is medical, and we are going to continue providing the medical care that we are supposed to for our patients. It just ends up putting those of us who provide that care in uncomfortable situation. Um, but you know, more importantly, it puts our patients in the middle and the impact it has on them and their health care and their emotional state is significant.
0: Well, I promised you politics at the start of the pod, and uh, there you had it. And <laughs> let, Let's get back to the clinical stuff. Meyer, I think you've got a weigh in there.
4: Yeah, so I was going to say, you know, Rob, you said that this is a, a catch-22 for the provider, um, but I think what Tracy has touched on is that, right, it's not a catch-22 for the patient. If you have a patient with an ectopic pregnancy, right, that is untreated, um, there is not both ways are not equally bad. Right? And so one of the things I really want to actually focus this on, because no matter what side of any issue anybody is on, right, like fundamentally, we are all on the side of taking care of patients. And um, what I would like to explore um, are what, based on your experience, have been sort of the key protocol and educational needs that this has created. Because most of us, right, don't think about, we think about how do we treat preeclampsia, right? Like acutely. And then it's like, get them to an OBGYN, (laughs) We don't think about, um, you know, severe uh, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy at 20 weeks and a four hour transport, right? That's not part of our sort of core curriculum about how you manage that from a 360 perspective, which is, right, like, We don't think about mag trips, right, long long term. Um, We don't think about the anticipated complications. We don't think about the psychosocial aspects of managing somebody in such a heartbreaking situation for four hours. And so I want to know, based on your experiences, how have you uh, provided leadership in this area? What protocols have you developed? Have you done that in a professionally? Because what I think is amazing here is that right, we have an OBGYN, an emergency physician, an EMS physician, a paramedic on a podcast together talking about this. Um, how did you work together to develop that? And then how did you meet the educational needs? Because I think the other thing is sometimes we have to teach about things, right, where everybody doesn't share the same political views. And I would Propose that probably in Tennessee, right? Like all the EMS providers are on not one side of the political, you know, spectrum. But fundamentally, I so said, I think everybody's for taking care of patients. So how do you come up with that education, deliver that education so that patients get the care that they, they need given this, this new development?
2: Well, from the OBGYN perspective, there are going to be more and more patients that we would historically manage ourselves. You know, um, you mentioned severe preeclampsia, other examples where pregnancy termination is um, necessary to save the life of the mother are situations like uh pre viable premature rupture of membranes where at 16 weeks, the water breaks, um, the baby is still alive. However, we know that the baby is going to pass at some point in time, and we also know with the water broken, the mom is at a significant increased risk of developing life-threatening infections, and that can happen quite quickly. The standard of care is to offer medical induction of labor um, so that we can avoid those high-risk situations where a patient becomes septic. Um now, with the law in place, this is not the kind of care that we can provide in Tennessee. So it changes the way we counsel patients about what their options are. Um, you know, they could stay at home with people that they know and love, stay with the healthcare team that they've seen for their pregnancy and wait for infection to set in or wait for the fetus to demise. Then we can manage her appropriately. Um, it does bring up the question of how sick is sick enough for us to be able to step in and manage her medically? Um, and nobody knows the answer to that question. Like Dr. Huff mentioned, you know, we're looking at the after effects and at, at a clinic, at a criminal trial, am I going to be able to defend and say, well, sh- she was sick enough? Um, alternatively, I could counsel that same patient that she could travel to a state, two states away. Um, receive the medically appropriate care, but she'll do that without her fan family and friends and the medical team that she knows. Um, and that kind of change in the way that we're limited in offering patients the options that, you know, we, we, we don't make the decisions for them. We just counsel them about what their choices are and then support them in their decisions. Um, but now in counseling them, it's, you know, the vast majority of the options are out of my hands.
1: Ashley, tell us about about this uh, um impacting EMS, uh, clinicians and what you're doing as an EM physician and as EMS medical director in your States where you're practicing, um, in terms of facility transfers. Um, once again, just to uh, pinpoint it, um, the thought of transporting a preeclamptic patient for four hours in the back of an ambulance might be one of the most terrifying things you could ever say to me.
3: Absolutely. Um, Dr. Coffin and I were talking about this this morning. Emergency physicians are the same way. When we get a very, very sick pregnant patient, our hope is that we can stabilize them and get them to labor and delivery, get them to an OB kind. And our EMS providers are the same way. we talk about OB care deserts, yesterday morning, early in the morning, I took a call from a crew who were taking care of a very small, very premature infant born two hours by ground and 45 minutes by air from the closest appropriate NICU. Um, This is up in Illinois, and this is happening more and more, and this is in a state that doesn't have laws like our trigger ban in Tennessee. Um, resources are just becoming very, very scarce. Uh, in Tennessee, now that we have these laws, we have additional pressures to transport patients further distances um, than we have, and that is in addition to the worsening access to OB care. So I think it's really important that we take a strong look, a close look, at our OB protocols. All ground EMS systems should have OB protocols. Um, most states require them. Um, but also on the air side, we're seeing more and more Um, helicopter EMS crews transporting patients long distances because they don't have access to a hospital that has OB care. Um, On the air side, most of those providers are critical care paramedics, uh, critical care flight nurses, and so they do already have Protocols that include MAG drips, levator wall pushes, um, massive transfusion protocols, administration of blood products, um, antibiotic drips for patients who are septic. So they do have those. But I think it's time that we look at potentially uh, seeing what we can do to advance the scope of our ground paramedics, particularly the ones that are going to have to travel longer distances. They need familiarity with uh antihypertensive medication pushes like labetalol if they aren't already pushing it. If they are not giving blood products, they need training on what these blood products are, how to administer them, how to make sure your patient is receiving appropriate care with these blood products, particularly if they are hemorrhaging or bleeding internally from their ectopic pregnancy. Um, These are things that they may or may not have continuing education on, they may or may not be familiar with, and just hoping that they can make it to a hospital with OB-GYN care, with a labor and delivery floor, is not going to be enough in some cases, particularly as these OB-GYN deserts worsen. My fear with this trigger ban in Tennessee is that we're going to lose more and more of our obstetricians, which is going to worsen these areas in our state, and patients here um, close to where I practice in the emergency department are going to have to go an hour or two drive an hour or two to receive this care they certainly already are in illinois
0: this is an intense conversation but don't forget everybody you can follow us on apple Podcasts, soundcloud stitcher spotify podbean apple music we're also embedded over with our friends at ems one and by the way hillary they just did a, uh, a post of the top uh, podcasts of the year and uh, we got a mention which is always exciting but for a second let's just have a word From our sponsor.
5: Hello, I'm Christine Fichter, the Executive Director of EMS Gives Life. At EMS Gives Life, our mission is simple we educate the EMS first responder community on how to become a living organ or bone marrow donor and then provide support if you choose to give this gift of life. Our organization was inspired by pro EMS paramedic Will Lindbergh's selfless decision to anonymously donate a portion of his liver, saving the life of a three year old boy. We know our community is full of heroes who perform life-saving acts every day. It is this heroism and selflessness that we're counting on. More than 6,000 people die each year on the transplant waiting list. Deceased donors are simply not enough. Living organ donors are desperately needed, and our community is up for the challenge. Would you consider being a living donor if you had the support you needed and the assurance that you will go to the top of the list if you ever needed a transplant in the future? Through our partnerships, we can make those promises. If you're curious about living organ or bone marrow donation, let's talk. And if you're already a living donor, we'd love to hear your story. You can find us at emsgiveslife.org. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Christine. I think that uh, EMS gives life is almost a metaphor for this podcast, uh, Hillary and uh, Maya. What do you think?
1: It's perfect. <laughs> Maya, let's uh, let's get into uh, again, the education and the clinical pearls here of how we're going to educate our providers to to, uh, really take the best care of these patients. Maya, what are you seeing, um, or what, what are you thinking about as um, a really involved EMS medical director in your paramedics education? And, um, Ashley and Tracy will hear from you as well.
4: So I live in a very sort of different climate, right? I live in, uh, the state of New York. Um, but I think that the key way to frame this is right. This is an exacerbation of an existing issue, right? Like we've always had to take care of these patients. It's just that an increased frequency, um, and sort of some of the unique conditions for sort of like these long range transports and one of the things i was really hoping to explore is how is this education provided and how is this guidance provided and so when i think about ems education right i think about the three domains of education i think about cognitive psychomotor and affective and if I was going to choose a topic where those three components are really key, um, this is definitely it, right? So, of the cognitive, like, understanding what are the medical conditions that they're going to encounter, what is the underlying pathophysiology, um, what are the treatments, including things like potentially having to deliver, right, like on route, like management of hemorrhage, um, management, as you said, of, like, different drips that they weren't uh, familiar with and the anticipated consequences, so like the hands-on components, And then exploring the affective. One of the things where I think we tend to trip up in our education is we think about the cognitive and we think about the psychomotor and we say they can do the thing, um, but then we don't actually teach them how to interact with the patients. I'm going to also sort of interact with sort of their feelings about what's going to go on with the patient, because I think... There's the patient experience and then there's sort of the experience and thought process of the person caring and what they're going to take from these interactions. And some of these I think can actually be like really traumatic experiences. So for everybody involved. So I was hoping to explore like, how is this education delivered? What has been delivered? What has been the, the mode of delivery uh, for it? And sometimes it might be like, I take the phone call and I give them feedback, right? Like, and then you, you say, wow. We probably need to provide some education about this because I didn't even consider the situation going to happen. Um, But that's what I was hoping to get from you.
2: Um, well, so uh, when I'm thinking about the patients that um, your EMS providers are going to be coming into contact with more frequently, I'm thinking about um, both those patients who are experiencing an early pregnancy loss, whether that is an ectopic um, or a miscarriage or uh, an elective termination. Again, the language here matters in all honesty, all these equal to an abortion. Um you're going to deal with that patient population, but then you're also going to deal with those patients who are sick to the point where the only cure is delivery of this infant, most likely pre viable. Um, and, you know, Ashley touched on it a little bit with the, the magnesium and labetalol. The patients that you're going to be transporting are going to be the sickest. They're the ones that are so sick that they have to, terminate a pregnancy, you know, that this isn't something that anybody takes lightly. It's, it's a significant medical decision. Um, but there are a, a big, significant emotional, um, components of this that I, I think you hit the nail on the head, Maya, that it is a traumatic experience but for the patient and those of us who take care of them in these moments. Um, dividing it, looking at those that are experiencing an early pregnancy loss, you know, even if it was um, a desired termination, there are still emotional components of it. We're going to see more and more patients who are um, receiving Plan C or the abortion pills through the
1: mail. Um, can, you, and can you just define sure. for us, Tracy, that we've heard uh, the word um, morning after pill, we've heard plan yes. B, and you just said plan C, and yes. then we also sure. know about medication abortion. Let's just get those definitions.
2: Yes, let's do. So plan A, obviously, is birth control of some sort, um, if we're talking about preventing pregnancy, and you know there are many forms of that. Plan B, um, and Dr. Hoff has kind of touched on it a little bit, which is um, a medication, progesterone, really, that you take in order to prevent ovulation so that if you had had exposure to unprotected intercourse, then it decreases the chance of ovulation and thereby pregnancy. Sperm has to be present at the time of ovulation in order to become pregnant and for the egg to fertilize. So we're trying to delay that from happening in order to prevent the pregnancy. It is not an abortifactant. It is, in fact, progesterone. And um, in patients who are already pregnant, this medication will have no ill effects. It actually is is the hormone that we give. Give to patients to support an early pregnancy. It's the hormone the body makes naturally. So um, putting that in perspective, I think is very important because there is a lot of misinformation surrounding plan B or the morning after pill. Now, Plan C, as it's been termed here lately, is um, any of the medications used for medical termination of pregnancy. And um, sometimes that is misoprostol alone um, or Cytotec um, or uh, mithopristone, um which is another um, medication in the same class. Sometimes, again, they're used in combination. Other times they're used individually. Uh, but the goal is the same, which is to induce uh, expulsion of the pregnancy. So um, bringing all that together, whether it is a, a induced termination or spontaneous pregnancy loss, or even cases in an ectopic, because sometimes you don't know, um, you're going to have patients who are scared, who are bleeding, who may have feelings of guilt or fear or, um, emotional distress just in general. And, you know, it, it really, it doesn't have a bearing on how we assess them and treat them medically uh, with regards to how they got to that point, if that makes sense. Um, so I think recognizing the stress of a pregnancy loss, no matter how it comes about is important for your EMS providers. Great. When, yeah.
1: Go ahead. Right. Go ahead, Trisha. No,
2: Well, with the patients, you know, that are those that are, you know, further along second trimester having medical indications for a termination of a pregnancy-induced uh, delivery, pre viable. again, those are the patients that are extremely sick. And when you're talking about patients who are in the second trimester generally, these are very much wanted and much desired pregnancies. So there is a huge emotional component to the idea of losing a baby that they probably already given a name to that people have probably already been giving them gifts for. Um, and now it's not going to end in a live baby. Um, and on top of that, the patients are themselves extremely sick. So, you know, coping with All the things that are happening to them in more likely than not a very short period of time um, is is what we see on a regular basis, because we historically have had them on labor and delivery and we're managing them, um, hopefully, you know, with patients that we know and know us and trust us. But now your EMS providers are going to take our place as they're transporting them to a facility that can provide that type of care.
4: Ashley, one of the things that I'm really interested in hearing from you is what do you think is sort of the best delivery model of how you provide this education um, so that when people are willing to hear the education, participate in the education, and understand the role in taking care of these patients and then get the requisite education they need. You know, is it distributive education? Is it a sensitive enough topic that the medical director or training director needs to sort of do one-on-one so that? people, not one-on-one, but like in person so that people sort of understand the context. Is it a matter of doing it in the context of a case review? What do you think is a good method to do that?
3: I, I really think each medical director is going to have to tailor this to their own agency, depending on where they are and, and where they think their team is, particularly where their education level is on this. Really, I think it all starts with the conversation. Uh, I gave a talk to my local EMS system, ground EMS system recently, and did a bit of a dive into these issues and discovered that while everyone in the room knew um, about row falling in the Dobbs decision, nobody knew about our trigger ban and what it said and how this could affect patients and how this could affect them. So I think we have to start there. They need to know what their state laws are. And
1: Ashley, you just said something so important in the educator world, and that's called activating prior knowledge. And one thing you can never do is assume that your students, whomever you're teaching, know something without asking them what they know. And you need to be able to make sure that any misconceptions that are Uh, being thought of can be corrected before you start with new education. So um, let me just put a plug in one more time for what Ashley just said. Before you do any education, make sure you understand what prior knowledge your providers have.
3: Thanks, Hillary. I completely agree. So that's where I started. And then we did a deep dive into what just, what does our trigger bands say? And then what situations does that set up for our patients' access to care. This doesn't really need to get into, you know, the politics or the religious aspects of our patients' care. What we should all be concerned about is whether or not our patients have access to healthcare, particularly for life-threatening emergencies right now. Um, particularly when it comes to EMS and transfers, most of the conditions we're talking about are. OB-related emergencies that happen every day. They've happened every day as long as women have have existed. Um, They're going to continue happening. When we add the additional element of patients potentially needing care due to um, taking, let's say, medication-induced abortion pills, maybe they received in another state, and now they're having heavy bleeding, or now they have an infection, which we've seen, and they need care. I think That additional conversation needs to take a dive into uh, professionalism and meeting our patients where they are and providing care for them regardless of where we personally stand on these issues. We're not here to judge our patients um, and judge the reason for why they're having a miscarriage for those who are having a miscarriage because they took medication-induced abortion pills. We're here to take care of them and address their needs. But that aside, most of these patients are patients with standard OB emergencies who normally could have been treated at their local hospital, who now are having to be transported long distances or out of state. Um, And that's why it's so important. We've got to We've got to get into these topics. We've got to go back and refresh information, refresh education on OB topics that we just haven't been seeing maybe as often that we're now about to see much more frequently. We also need to make sure uh, that we're getting our crews access to simulator training. Anybody who's transporting patients long distances who is in, in labor uh, may need to deliver that baby We have wonderful high-fidelity simulators that are available now across the country. We need to be looking for opportunities for them to be trained. They also will simulate um, difficult deliveries. They'll simulate a shoulder dystocia. Um, And our crews, while they've learned about this theoretically through book knowledge, not all have been able to get their hands on a patient. So um, I think looking for those opportunities, potentially being willing to send, either send your educator, send some representatives from your agencies to clinics or conferences where they can be trained and then bring this back. Um, Maybe even reach out to the companies who make these mannequins and see if they'll do a demo for you and you can provide your training there would be a a great opportunity, but we have to be proactive about this because we're going to see more of these situations already just with our OB care deserts now because of our politics. We're really going to be facing these more frequently.
4: So one of the things that um, I'm wondering is, you know, you might get a call like a med control call that says, well, I just took care of a patient with a medically induced abortion, right, uh, where they got some pills or, and the guidance you can give is always say, right, like, it doesn't matter how they got to this spot, right? Like, your goal is to take care of the patient. But EMS providers, what would you say if they say, like, well, the law says this is illegal? What guidance would you give to them in that situation?
3: The guidance I would give to my EMS providers would be that no care they are going to provide in the back of that ambulance is going to be illegal. Their job is to stabilize their patient and transport their patient to a higher level of care, to a hospital. Nothing they can do is going to be illegal, so it doesn't matter how their patient got in their situation or the fact that most of the patient's um, diagnoses, most of these emergencies are unrelated to taking abortion pills. Um, they just need to focus on their patient what their patient needs.
4: And I think we act like this is a new situation. This is not a new situation in EMS, right? In EMS, we take care of people who did things that are illegal in the eyes of the law, and now they are a patient. <laughs> Um, And it has always been our role, right? Whether or not it has been um, a a gunshot wound, a drug overdose, um, a DUI, something like that, right? Like our goal has always been that our goal is to take care of patients, no matter what the circumstances leading up to that. Um, And I just wanted to, I just wanted to hear you say that on this podcast.
0: (laughs) Just to paraphrase, our job is to act, not to judge and just get it done to the best of our ability, the best of your ability out there. Let's move on to uh, that uh, end of the show piece where I ask you all, how can we get in touch or how can we follow you? And let's go to our guests. Tracy, how can we get in touch or follow you if we need to?
2: Um, So here in Clarksville, Tennessee, we've actually established a grassroots organization called Ruth's Army, Tennessee, and um, we have a public-facing Facebook page with our contact information there, Um, and that would be the best way to follow me, Um, and I would be able to provide my contact information to you guys offline as well.
0: Great. Thank you. Ashley?
3: I do not have an amazing social media presence, but I'd be happy to provide my email address for people to follow up if they would like to.
0: Okay. And, and Hillary will put those in the show notes. Um, Dr. Dorset, Hillary Gates, you've been listening to this uh, intently. Uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts on this? Let's go to our medical director first, Maya. Uh,
4: my first thought is sort of great admiration and gratitude to colleagues in Tennessee who, are putting themselves out there and doing all this hard work to make sure our patients get the best possible care uh, for their communities and are really rising to this challenge. So thank you for one reaching out um, and making clear that this is a topic that should be talked about nationally, right? It's not a Tennessee specific problem, um, right? Like OB care is a national problem um, that has had exacerbated inequities. So um, I have a lot of gratitude to you and a lot of admiration for what you're doing.
0: Hillary, take us home.
4: As an
1: educator, one of the things I heard on this podcast that I love is the need for us to attend to the affective domain of our students and our learners, and that means attending to the emotional, the psychosocial, the soul, the heart, and the um, stereotypes and the beliefs of our providers. We cannot ignore these things. When we are taking care of patients in such a high stress situation, whether it's an OB patient, a trauma patient, cardiac patient, or a mentally ill patient, we must make sure that our clinicians have the ability to talk through their feelings. We must make sure that they are able to discuss what they believe and uh, what they know. And I applaud Ashley and Tracy and Maya's efforts here to make sure that we are paying attention to this and that we are allowing our providers to be human. And that in education is one of the most important things we could ever do.
0: Hillary, powerful comments in what has been a very powerful show. A lot to take in, a lot to take away, a lot of to-dos, a lot of things to think about. It's been emotional. It will be emotional for you out there while you're delivering this care. EMS response to OB deserts. Thanks to our guests, uh, Dr. Ashley Huff, Dr. Tracy Coffey, our guest and host, our ghost, Dr. Maya Dorset. As always, Hilary Gates. I've been Rob Lawrence. You can follow us on all the usual social media channels. And before we go, don't forget, if you're enjoying the show, Please take a moment to rate and review us on the platform that you're listening to us on. That's very important to put us up the charts. But for the moment, this has been the EMS Educator Podcast. Thank you all very much for listening, and we'll all see you next time. Bye for now.